Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. How did he earn Michael's respect? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Michael's a tough customer. Uh, I'm not sure he ever fully did. I was in 97. I was, Tex and I were sitting before a game, and we were sitting in Michael's locker because Michael would usually get there, you know, he, he, it just wasn't used, uh, early. And, you know, we're sitting in the locker room talking about something. And Michael walked in, and he had the box from his shoes. Mm -hmm. And Tex loved to collect those shoe boxes, just like he loved. uh, If if you left a little meat on the bone on your steak at dinner, he would finish that steak for you. Just like uh, the anecdote you started out with, him filling out the forms for the publisher's clearinghouse. (laughs) Tex never got past that Depression era background of a poor kid, you know. And so he he loved those shoeboxes at Jordan's. He would keep all of his investment documents. You know, they mail you every month or every quarter, and Tex had every, kept track of every penny he ever made. And so he would put all that stuff in Jordan's shoeboxes. And we were sitting in Jordan's uh, dressing stall, just running our mouths uh, one night before a game, and Michael walks in and looks over, and you can tell he's just pissed that we're sitting there in his locker. But he has, he has the shoebox in his hand, and he doesn't want to have to tell us to get the hell out of his locker. So he walks over, and he looks at Tex. He says, do you want the shoebox? And Tex said, yes, I want it. And Michael looked at that shoebox in his hand, turned it over, looked at it, and just threw it on the floor and walked <laughs> So I was astounded. I said, These guys have a lot of animosity, but they, but um, it, you know, Tex was always a truth teller, and Michael knew that 
for everybody there trying to kiss your hind end, they were the truth tellers and they were the ones that were really important. Uh, so it was uh, it was interesting between the two. But uh, Tex, you know, was uh, very important and he had ways, things he wanted them done. He used to infuriate Jordan by telling him that he didn't know how to throw a proper chess pass. And of course, Tex invented the tossback machine. You've seen the machine where you throw the, it's it's like a on a frame and the ball comes back at you. It's how you work on pass. And Dennis Rodman, who idolized Tex, who, I mean, who worshipped Tex, would, to see him work on that tossback machine, just throwing those passes. But uh, that is another point about uh, those uh, those Bulls teams. Uh, you know, they were the elite team in the world, but uh, they would they'd come into practice and work. You know, the the fundamentals that those teams went through. Those guys would do the drills with things like chess passes. You can't get. Uh, you can't get uh, 14-year-old youth teams to, to do those daggone drills, to sit there and do all those different passes and all that different footwork and stuff. And Scotty and Michael were all over it. They were, they were just fierce workers and possessed of... Somewhere along the line, they got really deep respect. And it started with Michael. He had such deep respect for the position of coach. Hmm. And so they worked so hard that there was nobody going to come on that team who wasn't going to follow in line with that. And Texas, you know, they were on the dream team, uh, Pippen and Jordan. And they had just, you know, they played against Clyde Drexler, but then they were on the team with him. And they realized just what an amazing athlete Clyde Drexler was. Mm -hmm. And Pippen made a remark out loud on the Dream Team bus. Could you imagine what Drexler would have been if he had worked just a year with Tex Winter? And so there was a, there was a there was a work ethic, a cult, and that's how Robin, those guys hated each other. Who Robin and Tex Winter, or Robin no, and Michael no. Jordan? Robin and Jordan and Pippen, they'd had such wars when okay. Robin was with the Pistons. Gotcha. But the thing that bonded them, there was just not a lot of BS when it came to practice. They had. They all had just, and probably nobody studied more tape than than Rodman. Man, I, Dennis Rodman. When during my childhood, I remember as a kid, I came into a lot. I was you know did radio with the Nets, and I came in the locker room. Dennis was sitting on a chair, Indian style, with pajama pants on. He had ankle right, socks no. with yep with balls on them. Yeah, and Dennis, I tried to talk with him before the game. He wasn't trying to talk to me. He was studying tape before the game. He literally had the chair right. in the middle of the room, 
and was watching this, like almost like this drag out TV, like almost like the drag out TV they had in the 90s when you were watching movies in school. And he was just yeah. glued to the TV. And uh, his, 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 his attention to detail and tape was what was always fascinating to me. And while many people thought he and Michael had conflicting personalities, I actually thought that they were very similar, just their practicality was different. I think that's a good observation. The um, well, I got to know Dennis. I used to do the Pistons work stuff. I did their championship books and traveled with them and had a lot of fun. I had tremendous respect for Joe Dumars and Isaiah. And I got to know Dennis was just a kid. And he was so amazing. Even then, you had to write about him. And he was just starting to get some... Uh, some notoriety and so the fact that he could somehow be a star in the NBA had dawned on him much mm -hmm. less a Hall of Famer and so I had known Dennis a while and of course Jack Haley as you mentioned mm -hmm. at the top of the show Jack was very close with Dennis and um, they, you know, they both were Vegas guys. They like to go gamble. <laughs> Jack was there in San Antonio and they brought him to the Bulls just because they needed an interpreter. The biggest <laughs> thing about Dennis when he came to the Bulls was he didn't speak to anybody. And really? he, yeah, he didn't talk. Uh, and you know, he had a lot of trouble respecting David Robinson because David was, a brilliant man, you know, 1,300-plus in his SATs, Naval Academy graduate, just so gifted uh, in every way. Uh, just a fascinating athlete. He could he could put together a radio, you know, he could take a radio kit and build it for you. He, he was just knew everything mm -hmm. and had so much ability, but he did not have a good work ethic when it came to practice. And he had really? never, no, he, he did not. And David has gotten mad about this, but I saw it covering the Spurs in their preseason camp back before Tim Duncan got there. Um, anyway, Rodman would not speak to David Robinson because he did not. They had to do a Pepsi commercial, had to fly on a small plane together for a bunch of hours. And Robin wouldn't even address him. But Robin could be like that. He uh, he was a very different cat. He he had some tough experiences. But what a great time to come along with all of those folks. It was yeah. a great time in basketball. It really set the stage for today. I'm still trying to decide because the game has changed so much. You can't even compare a player today. I know everybody wants to do it. But Doncic said something, you know, because he, they got, they always got a stat. But 25 and 5 is a pretty good stat. And they were asking him about it now. He had tied Jordan for the longest string of games with 20 points and five assists and five rebounds. And Doncic said, it, it, it's just a stat. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really say a, a, a lot about comparing with Jordan because you can't compare with that guy. And um, I, we just, they eliminated defense and the hand checks and all that stuff. And, 
when they reinterpreted the rules in 2005, and they did it for obvious reasons. They wanted to have uh, – some of the games could get boring, but it really became a game of calling a lot of fouls. and You couldn't touch an offensive player going to the basket. We saw it in the 06 finals with all those foul calls when anybody laid a hand on Dwayne Wade. Of course, Jordan played his whole career with just tremendous physical challenges. Uh, it wasn't just a hand, you know, there's a bar arm everywhere. It was, uh, you had all the bumping, the cutter drills. I was coaching at that time. You know, somebody come through the lane, you'd knock the crap out of them. And if you didn't knock the crap out of them, I, and bumping the cutters, throwing a forearm into them. And if you didn't bump the cutter, they'd put your butt on the bench unless you're a superstar. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the game, all of that's gone. You can't bump the cutter anymore. You can't do any kind of hand check or any kind of hindrance on a. That's why you see so many layups where people just go to the basket and and it's unfettered. And so it's hard to compare. But you know the game today has a whole different set of challenges. It's just very different. You can't compare the game today with yesterday. There are things Mm-mm. that are. Much more elevated about the game today than yesterday. And there were things yesterday that were much more elevated than they are today. It's just, it's almost like two different games. Yeah, it is two different games. Scoopy Radio on the line talking to my new homie, Roland Lanzini, <laughs> talking all things basketball. Me and you can sit around and talk for hours, for real, for real. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, I spoke to Jason Caffey uh, recently on the Scoopy Radio podcast, um, who told me about kind of just what it was like being around Dennis Rodman, and he talked about how, you know, like he and Steve Kerr and as well as uh, Phil Jackson would kind of take turns and kind of being like his, his uh, I guess you could say, his chaperone during the nightlife. Um, and he talked about how Madonna told, put in Dennis, and advised Dennis to put his contract um, to have multiple jerseys uh, that he could use as a marketing ploy to go to the fans. Uh, and then he kind of talked about Michael Jordan and Dennis's relationship. With the perception that many people have about Michael and Dennis is that they weren't friends or that Michael and Scotty didn't really speak to Dennis. From your perspective and who you spoke with uh, throughout the process of writing books about the Bulls, what sense did you get about Dennis's relationship with the Chicago Bulls players on the roster? Well, I think early on they didn't speak. Dennis didn't speak at all early on. And I'm talking about the fall of 95. You know, he went to the Bulls bankrupt. He had lost all his money, gambled it away and stuff. And he got up to Chicago in the fall of 95 and, Jordan himself was filled with anger then. He was very angry, still angry over the death of his father. He was really angry over his play in the spring of 95 when he uh, turned the ball over in key times against Orlando, things he just never did. Mm-hmm. And he came into that camp furious. That's when he punched Steve Kerr and they had all the and so it wasn't that initially that that bad image came from the initial uh, moments or the the training camp and and the all the early time together for that team. But um, Michael and and as Steve explained to me for the Jordan book, uh, Michael and Dennis uh, 
you know, came to have an understanding, sort of like Kareem and Magic. They knew how to stay out of each other's way, and, and uh, everybody on that team feared, even Dennis, who didn't fear much, feared Jordan. He scared the crap out of people. Hmm. And, and uh, he, he didn't have to do much to do that. Some of them were foolish, but most everybody, you know, tried to give him a wide enough berth. Right. Uh, but they uh, they had a healthy respect, and uh, that all developed. They won championships together, and they fit together like a glove, you know. Uh, Dennis was so – he got them extra shots with all those offensive rebounds. And uh, so they bonded over time. Uh, everything that, that those guys told you is accurate. It's just – you know, no situation with a team is static. It starts one way, and it either goes uphill or downhill, usually. And uh, usually related to how you gel together on the floor. Mm-hmm. Basketball is its own language in that regard. You know, it's like music. <clears throat> it's a language, and you'll have musicians who hardly talk to each other, but they step on that stage... They talk the same language. They know how mm-hmm. to. And it's like they don't need to say anything after they've. I mean, you don't need to say a whole lot. Uh, if you've played a great basketball game or you've played a great concert, you've, you've, you've really talked in all the other ways you talk. You've communicated. You've. There's uh, you, 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 sort of a. Um, Sort of a merging of intuition, intuitive mm-hmm. nature, and uh, that's that's one of the fascinating things about it. My son is your age, is a musician, and so the more I watch, he plays in a bunch of bands, and I'll I'll go watch him. I enjoy it, and, uh, but I'm just always thinking about the intuitive nature of things, and uh, it's it's almost beyond. Sometimes guys like you and me who rely on spoken language and have a lot of fun with it, we forget that that's not always the most important thing for everybody else. They have their ways of talking and communicating on an elevated level. Yeah, I, I think that's that's interesting. My stepfather himself is a musician. And I played, you know, for a little while and the concept of bonding and the concept of just people's egos and the concept of just talent and everybody knowing their role within a particular band definitely ties into the role that people play, the five players on the basketball court. And right, the you know, flow, the whole mm-hmm. flow of the thing. That's why George Mumford, who uh, was Dr. J's roommate at UMass uh, back in the 70s, George Mumford, the team psychologist for both the Bulls with Jordan and later for the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe. Uh, George is not only one of my dear friends, but he's a mentor because the guy, he's the Zen master to Phil Jackson. Be a great guy to have on your show sometime. Uh, but he, he's the guy who really did all the meditation and, and all the mindfulness and all of the sorting out of relationships with those Bulls and Lakers teams. And they all had immense respect for him. And uh, George was just such a guy that 
got me thinking in terms of flow and uh, just that was the fun thing about those Phil Jackson teams. Sometimes or uh, uh, maybe, you know, Phil was known more for what he didn't say than for what he said. And some of the people who worked with him a while, usually not as players, but the PR people would think that, uh, you know, the marketing people are the people who were sort of the butt of his, uh, his actions. I uh, always thought that Phil was full of shit a lot of times, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, there was a um, there was an important thing about that. You know, Doc Rivers meditates. Uh, that's the only way he can cope with all the stress of coaching in the NBA with everything required. And you see that more and more in, in George Mumford. Uh, you know, works with all kinds of people. He has a fabulous book, The Mindful Athlete. And it it really is. Um, there are things that Phil did. Phil could be a, a real uh, pain in the butt. But he also did things that elevated the game. And a lot of the mindfulness stuff he did by bringing in George and and relying heavily on text with the triangle, which is a read offense. It was a complicated way. It's um, but once everybody got settled into it, and sometimes it took some time. But once they did, it was it was really empowering for the players. And uh, there are other ways to do that today. The game has moved on from the triangle, which is, uh, I don't know, it's an old, old offense. But uh, even though Phil was less than perfect, he he was a primary figure in an extraordinary era for, for the game. And for popular culture, that, you know, Jordan became such a figure and um, that was important to him, but it was more important to the culture. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think in the era that in which we live with where everybody's focusing on mental health and just uh, challenging the mind and more, I think it's interesting that with the All-Star Game coming in 2020 um, that we now recognize the iconic uh, team that is the Chicago Bulls. You know, you saw Phil Jackson burning stage and people thinking it was marijuana smoke in the Bulls locker room because those guys had never seen it. Um, you, you saw how, you know, Phil Jackson used the media to get players' attention. Imagine Phil Jackson coaching the Bulls in this era. It'd be very interesting to watch. Um, but I'm not it, sure. It, uh, it, that is something I hadn't thought about. But having Phil today in the league, you know, they used to laugh at um, – Don Nelson, the coaching staff of the Bulls, used to laugh at Don Nelson and Mike D'Antoni, all those guys who wanted to play up-tempo. And Texas' phrase was always, you can hurry to a butt-whipping. And, of course, <laughs> the, those Bulls and Lakers teams made their living off of controlling tempo and then stoving your head in with with what they did. They'd spread the floor in the half court and particularly in the playoffs and they had all kinds of tricks to just shred opposing teams. 
but they did not. They ran a obviously they ran a secondary or control break. Some they didn't want to turn down baskets when somebody gave them, and especially when they got their pressure defense going. But they were not a team that liked to really get out and just throw the tempo to the wind. They wanted to control everything, so they laughed it. And they said guys like Dan Tony and Don Nelson, they could win a, a lot of regular season games, but. When it came to playoff basketball, they just never, never could get it done, just because tell me, of lack of focus. Tell me something. Uh, Steve Carr, head coach of the Golden State Warriors, uh, has had the benefit of playing under Phil Jackson, uh, text winner as well, uh, as, as well as under um, Greg Popovich, current coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Right. Uh, from your perspective, um, did Steve gravitate more to Phil than he did Pop, or did he really adopt both of their coaching philosophies and implement them uh, into his style and, 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 and his stops in the NBA? I sort of took a little bit of everything. He would you know, do some of the corner series from the triangle. He... Um, you know, there were certain things uh, about how he, uh, about how Phil operated. Again, it wasn't so much what Phil said; it was what he didn't say. He would, you know, he was just sort of quiet and mysterious a lot of the time, and he was always thinking ahead of the players. But Phil, also, I mean, but uh, Steve Kerr also picked up from Dan Tony. I, they were, I, I believe they were both in that Phoenix culture together there. Uh, Steve, for a while, was uh, uh, the GM in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. Uh, but I, I'd have to go back and check my media guide and my memory to see if. But I, I think they were there part of the time together. I might be wrong. But there's no question that he pulled in. A lot of Dan Tony's views. You know, I've talked with Mike a lot about that. He's a very nice gentleman and a brilliant offensive mind. But his whole thing was that um, post play was a waste of time in the NBA. You know, you just didn't have basketball wasn't producing people who had dropped steps and who were efficient scorers on the block. And so Dan Tony's whole point was we're better off shooting threes. And uh, the mid-range jumper, just like all the analytics today, is a wasted shot. And you either got to dive to the basket for an open layup or shoot a three. Um, we see various things, uh, various versions of that in the game today. Uh, I, I, I have fussed before that it's all it's done is make basketball uglier. That's not hmm. true. It has made it uglier in some regards. Some nights there are just so many jacked up bad shots, but it has also uh, brought a a uh, efficiency to the game. It may be a course efficiency some nights, but uh, that you can't argue uh, with the efficiency sometimes of analytics. I, I I prefer a game that relies more on player instinct, on instinctual stuff. Uh, people would say, well, the triangle really is not about instinct. But once the players learned to make the reads, uh, it was very instinctual for them. 
And um, but either way, uh, I, I think uh, um, we live in the age of player power today, and that's good. It's not perfect power, but when the owners had all the power, it wasn't perfect either. And I think uh, it's just going to take time to – players are, are pretty good at, for a guy like LeBron James is uh, is, is uh, pretty good at uh, the power thing. He has a lot of power. He's probably the most empowered player in the history of the game. And he's made some mistakes. But he uh, he doesn't tend to repeat them from what I've seen. It just, uh, you know, uh, we like to keep things in boxes once we figure them out, but they just keep mm-hmm. evolving. It's like technology or anything else. And basketball is evolving, and uh, there are certain figures that uh, provide, uh, preside over that evolution. And uh, the more power the players have, it's their game. Naismith, who invented it, didn't want it to be overcoached or coached at all. And so um, it'll be interesting to see where the game goes. I, I'm 67. You're much younger. You're going to get to witness that. I won't. But uh, I am eager to see how it all unfolds. It is fascinating. Certainly basketball has had tremendous popularity uh We'll see if the political brouhaha with China affects that uh, unbelievable profitability of basketball today. If if everybody gets back on the same page, basketball is just going to keep, well, they'll just keep printing money. I I don't know where it's going to go financially. But it seems to be only headed up unless the Chinese market somehow disappears from the NBA ledgers. That ain't happening anytime soon. <laughs> I, I don't think so either. I agree. But, you know, it's funny to see it threatened there. That reminded everybody. Mm-hmm. From LeBron to Daryl Morey, all those folks had a good look at it, the commissioner. And oh, yeah. basically they're all powerless in the face of it. That was the, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In an age when they have power. Scoopy ready on the line with Roland Lanz and be, Lazen be talking everything basketball and more. Got a couple more questions. Uh, text winner, fascinated by the relationship that you guys had. Uh, rest in peace to the former Lakers and Bulls coach, uh, assistant coach. Uh, I talked about Dennis Rodman uh, and Michael kind of having similar temperaments, uh, just they went about it differently, almost like the difference between Malcolm and Michael. By any means necessary, I had a dream. They said the same thing, but just two different ways. Uh, when I look at Kobe Bryant and I look at Michael, in my opinion, I think Kobe is the second, is, is the closest that I'll see to, my, to Michael in my lifetime as far as a pro. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. and more. Um, text winner, did he navigate those two the same or differently? Differently, and I spent hours talking with Tex about that. That's a great question. Um, First of all, they're both perfectionists. And as Tex explained, all the great players, Jerry West, Michael, Kobe, Magic, they're all perfectionists their own way. Their games are different sometimes, but they are perfectionists. What separated Michael from Kobe? They both had tremendous will and drive and intelligence, all that stuff. 
But Michael got to play three years of college ball. Mm-hmm. Now, it so happens that Bill Guthridge, who was, you know, the, the guy who really set up and ran so much of Dean Smith's stuff at North Carolina, he was his top longtime assistant, was was actually Tex Winter's point guard at Kansas State. And yeah. then he became Texas assistant coach. Now the the um, the Tar Heels didn't run the triangle, although Guthridge was an expert in the triangle, having played it as a player and coached it as a coach. But they ran uh, a, they they were a, what's called a system basketball team. They run a system. And the players have to learn and fit within that system. There are people who are big fans of system basketball. If you get your system up and running and you get the players, you're going to kick a lot of booty. But there are also NBA scouts used to go crazy trying to scout Carolina players. Because the system, and they did this even with Jordan, the system hides their athleticism. A lot of times you can't tell how good they are. Because they're so caught up in the system. But obviously the triangle is one of those systems that worked famously. And so Michael, Tex always said Michael had those three years at Carolina. He came to the uh, NBA. And, of course, he spent the early part of his NBA being unleashed and able to play for Kevin Lockery and able to just run and get it, you know, and just get his and just fully explore the range of his athleticism. And that was vital, too. But Michael had that background from Carolina, which he he was very bright, and they would laugh at his – because he, he was so pinpointed in his questioning, they would laugh watching him question texts about things or Phil. And, and you know, uh, everybody would want to know, what did Michael say? You know, after uh, one, one particular session or another, because, well, it was, it was where it was like some test laboratory where the best ideas of a coach meet the the best of everything a player can can bring to it. So it was unique in this sort of, uh, it had a lot of tension to it. It uh, it was not something just done rotely. You know, Michael was challenging in every way possible. And they, they came to a meeting of the minds and, Michael learned how to make that the heart of his own efficiency. And so Tex uh, said Kobe had none of that. Kobe came right from high school. He uh, had been told by Adidas that he was the next Michael. And what they shared, and probably Kobe exceeded Michael, was, as I described earlier, was, was tremendous, tremendous work ethic. But Kobe would chase the ball a lot and do things. He had uh, he had some habits that annoyed the crap out of his older <laughs> teammates and coaches. You know, as a young player, and I remember Kobe telling me, "I'm not going to let them break me." 
I'm not going to let them break me. You know, he had his own dream, his own idea. Kofi was another guy who had studied everybody. And I would talk with him about this. I'd been through all the bull stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I watched Kobe come on and I said, dang. <laughs> yeah, this guy is, uh, I, I remember I was in Charlotte the first night he scored an NBA field goal. He had a three. And I walked in the locker room. He hit me with a soul shake and a tug. And, <laughs> and he didn't know who the hell I was. I was some clown with a microphone. But uh, he was just so eager to, to greet the world after that. But then uh, this is how the All-Star game used to be. That year it was in Cleveland. It was the 50th anniversary. Of the 97, league. right? Yeah. And Kobe had to do the slam dunk contest. And here I am, some freelance bozo that's been around the league doing crap for a good while, but I'm no power player. You know what I mean? I'm no uh, sanctioned uh, dude. I'm not a made man. I'm I'm some working stiff out of here. Drove in the Chevette diesel to get up there uh, or some other car like that. And, uh, you know, I'm not staying at the, the five-star. I'm... I'm staying somewhere, you know, where you're kind of suspicious of the free breakfast. And uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sitting with Kobe in the locker room for 30 minutes before he goes out and wins that slam dunk contest. We're sitting in there, just the two of us. Uh, we It might have been 45 minutes. I got the whole interview I did with him, man. I learned, you know, I just, I, I'd gone out and done a little book where I spent time with Iverson and Kobe and all the next generation coming in because mm-hmm. I'd spent all this time with Jordan and I wanted to say, who's got it? Who can follow this guy? And so I was having fun with it. And uh, I look at that today. There's no way they would let me near that locker room to sit there and I mean, everything is so packaged and controlled today. It yeah. really started to change in 2000, I noticed, when the PR people just took over the NBA, took it away from the writers and stuff, which is probably good. I, you know, I'm not, they're not, it's not bad, I guess. I just loved all the freedom to go and learn and meet people and hang out. That's really how the best things happen. Yeah. Notice in this interview, I asked you no questions about LeBron. This is my last question <laughs> for you. For those listening, Scoopy Radio on the line with Roland Lattner. and be talking all things basketball. Um, when you look at Michael Jordan, uh, we, we came back from retirement uh, in 94, 95, um, playing baseball. Uh, Walk in the semis to the Orlando Magic, uh, et cetera. Um, the Rockets won two championships, if you recall. I had Kenny Smith on the Scoopy Radio podcast. He told me had Michael not retired, uh, the Bulls would not have won those championships. The Rockets still would have won them. That's not my question. Here's my question. Preparing for um, his second three-piece from 96 to 98, Michael Jordan uh, filmed Space Jam. Um, Comparatively, 
LeBron James uh, got hurt Christmas of last year and missed the playoffs. And in April through the beginning of the season, he sat out and he's been a monster. Uh, LeBron James also uh, picked Space Jam this past summer. From your perspective, from everything you know, from covering Michael and more, do you see a parallel between Michael's retirement and returning and running the three-peat and LeBron's subsequent injury uh, and now getting Anthony Davis with the Los Angeles Lakers and preparing to potentially make it to the finals? Do you see any parallels between those two gentlemen? Um, yes, there's some. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Mike was younger. He came back in 95. Uh, he had just turned 32 mm-hmm. when he headed into the second uh, about, And I was there for every game of that, you know, traveling with him. And it was quite an exciting time in my life just uh, because it was Jordan. The whole world lost its mind when Jordan came back. Mm-hmm. And they really helped. You know, they talk about Dream Team goosing the uh, global uh, interest. But Jordan's return, you know, the second coming, uh, that did as much as the Dream Team in a lot of ways. Because the Dream Team was just out there kicking booty, you know, for Mm -hmm. these guys that had not uh, really come from strong basketball cultures in a lot of ways. But Jordan coming back was amazing. And he has troubles. Um, Jordan's a much more intense guy than LeBron. I've been day drinking with LeBron's uncle in uh, Akron. And I've looked a lot at LeBron's life, his family. Uh, LeBron's remarkable. He's, uh, he owns the league. He has, um, his father's name is Roland. We have the same name. His father got murdered in, after a card game in Akron in 94. He wasn't even clear who his father was. He's, he, he came from some hardcore street background. And um, I, I was very interested in uh, uh, the power and accomplishment of fatherless men, fatherless children. And I think LeBron is a fascinating study for that. I I don't know if anybody, I mean, there are, there are certain people that come to own the league. Jordan obviously comes to mind. Certain people who are just the dean of the league. I'm not sure Kobe ever had that because of the sexual assault charges. He, he was agreed. Uh, but but Jordan had it, and Magic had it to a degree. I mean, he he, he vanquished Bird. Magic was Magic's big um, disadvantage and great advantage too was that he played in L.A. But Magic had the personality. Bird was funny in a sly way, but he Bird wasn't the Bird was very comfortable in who he was. The hick from French Lake. Um, but but there are those guys who have owned the league, and LeBron has done it, and he has done it without benefit of college education. He has done it without uh, so many of the people who have come to be that guy in in pro basketball. 
uh, and in a lot of sports. They they come from. Uh, they're not always perfect families, but they are. Uh, you know, they are full families. They have mm-hmm. a mother and a father, and uh, and LeBron has done it all on his own in some ways. Now he's had these wonderful people that have come into his life, most of them youth coaches and different people who have. When his mother wasn't capable uh, or wasn't uh, locked in in the way some people thought she should be, uh, you know, there were people who came in and helped out. But um, yeah, I also like to write about players' relationships with their mothers, and I really uh, admire uh, LeBron's relationship with his mother. She's a mm-hmm. tough lady. Everybody's afraid of her back in that Akron. She's she can be tough, but he loves his mother and has deep respect for her. And um, he's just uh, he's just been the man for the NBA in every way. and uh, He hasn't been that cutthroat, rip-out-your-eyeballs guy, but he, he doesn't have to be. You know, he's, he's really more. Now, Magic would rip your eyeballs out, but he wasn't. But he Magic was a guy who shared the ball. Jordan was going to. They had to have the triangle to get Jordan to share the ball. You never had mm-hmm. that issue with with magic, and less so, less and less so with LeBron. But um, LeBron has been a major, major, major godsend for American professional basketball uh, as a player, obviously, but really as the man, as the person. The stand-up guy. I mean, he he has, and he has done this by incorporating high school teammates. Uh, he's really formed a power base that has claimed power in unprecedented fashion. And I really like to write about black power, not the black power of protest, but the black power uh, through things like the NBA, different areas, because uh, it's a big cultural thing. And uh, I think LeBron is, gosh, I just can't imagine anybody leading that better. Uh, I, I just can't. Now, uh, people all over the planet love him. I mean, he's a great salesman for shoes, phones, or whatever. I don't all that stuff, but I guess. But um, he, he's not that deeply charismatic figure like Jordan. <laughs> I mean, Jordan was like, you know, he had what Sonny Vaccaro called the it factor. Kobe had it too, but Kobe came. Kobe came in. He was still a punk, and I don't mm-hmm. mean that derogatively. He's just eighteen. Mm-hmm. He came in where I mean he he didn't. He, you know, he, Kobe likes to use the phrase "grown ass man." Well, he wasn't a grown ass man when he came in, and so he he acquired 
between that and the misunderstanding about how he got there, he acquired a lot of disrespect. It probably ended up being some of the fuel or a lot of the fuel for him. Everybody's got to get it from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will tell you, LeBron has um, his legacy will be not just as a great competitor, but as a, a great, great ambassador. You know, I went to Virginia Military Institute, and that, the whole concept there is the citizen soldier. You know, you're not. Now, there are a bunch of career army guys, military guys that come out of that, but there, there are an awful lot of guys who do their three or four years and go on to civilian life, so they call them citizen soldiers. Well, I would say that LeBron is the first great citizen athlete, and, hmm. and he, 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 he doesn't, he's not running around trying to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. He's got a lot of edge to him. Yes. He doesn't put up with a lot of crap culturally. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, he's got the appropriate edge. He, <clears throat> he, for, for someone who, you know, supposedly you've got to have this big finishing school in this culture, but for someone who had none of that, the big thing in LeBron's life was getting to move into public housing at like 12 years old. Mm-hmm. To get to move into public housing, he got a place in Akron with his mother, and it was a big thing. And um, that doesn't mean he hasn't been. uh, One of the complaints is that he was so coddled, he never really had to fight. Uh, I guess you could say that about everybody. Uh, if you want to make sweeping statements about a generation, you might try to say that about his generation. It's BS. He's had to fight plenty. He, he just knows how to win those fights without, you know what I'm saying? In a way, Allen Iverson didn't have that finish. No, and uh, Allen Iverson, don't get me wrong, he's, He's great. He, he he got sent to prison on a first. I used to be a police and, and court reporter. Nobody goes to prison on a first offense. Well, African Americans used to go to prison on first offense all the damn time. But I mean, he was in the modern age, and he got to send to prison on a first offense. He was the uh, high school football player of the year in Virginia and the high school mm-hmm. basketball player of the year. And they sent him to prison over a bowling alley fight. Mm-hmm. But now he ended up with the benefit of um, the benefit of uh, Georgetown and John Thompson. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I just have to make this distinction. Alan Iverson is a good person. He he's is. a hell of a player, and he he is uh, he he's had to come through some things. Everybody's got to kill their own snakes, but uh, I I don't want to in in saying what I'm saying about LeBron. I don't want to make this a negative statement about Alan Iverson because that guy has been as 
as kind and considerate in dealing with me when he was young, a rookie, right on through. And we're not great buddies or anything. I mean, it's not like I I was just a guy interviewing him and and observing his life and spending time talking to him. But I will tell you that um, he, he has some victory over his issues, and he's a great guy. Uh, LeBron's, it's no knock against any player in the league that they're not LeBron. LeBron is uh, highly unusual in that he's he's a, a person capable of doing what he's done. Just when I, I think at the top of the show, I said, I, I don't run into anybody at or I haven't in my 30-some years of doing this, who's not a remarkable human being in a lot of ways. It's just, it just, you don't, you can't negotiate the waters if you're not. So that, so many of them, I mean, I just, I've always been uh, highly appreciative of that. But LeBron is a different level human being. Now he's not, he, as soon as you say that, he may do something, you know, I've, I've done enough dumb crap in my life that you got to put a caveat on everything. But right. LeBron has really been the mayor. He's been the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that's a big, big job, a tall order. Yeah. Scoopy Radio talking to my guy Roland Lazenby. We have to do this again. Uh, hey man, I've enjoyed it. It's a great <laughs> laid back conversation. You can tell I love to run my mouth. Hey man, you I met you, I met my match then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're patient. You know, it took me years. My biggest problem doing interviews is I get excited and want to jump in and start talking. I have a hard time transcribing my interviews because i got to listen to my dumb ass talking. <laughs> and it wears you out. But you have already mastered uh, the art of interviewing because you'll ask a question and sit back and let them talk. Yeah, that's how you get all the juicy stuff. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and I'm a 67. I'm a hell of an interviewer, but I'm still just learning that. Yes, sir. It's all about flow and conversation. It is. Yes, sir. It is. And I'm really glad you tracked me down. I uh, I really appreciate you for having me on. Anybody, anybody writing literature about basketball, you've already got my ear, but when you know the history of the 90s bowl, that's, that's even better. Well, you know, uh, there's a saying uh, down the country, even a blind hog can find an acorn every now and then. And that is me. I uh, just got, I, you know, I was basically doing what my old man loved. You know, I, you don't even realize you're spending your life living an ode to your father. But... Mm-hmm. uh it's it's ended up working out. It's been a lot of fun, and so I was lucky to be there. Yes, sir. Yes, okay. sir. You got a you got a book coming out with Magic Johnson. Uh, yeah. Johnson. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, he's um, he's a force. 
East the Revolution. East the Revolution that made today possible. Uh, nobody can have his size and play the point guard position the way he played it. It's revolutionary. Scoopy Radio. Overtime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.